Canada Conversations is brought to you by Deloitte Canada, helping you navigate the complex challenges your company faces through recovery and enabling you to thrive in the new normal. To learn more, visit Deloitte.ca. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the September 4th, 2020 episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor here at Automotive News Canada. Well, folks, time flies, doesn't it? Has it been four years already? Are we really preparing for a month-long event that involves some tense moments, big wins, some losses, and the news conferences to discuss it all? And no, I'm not talking about the Olympic Summer Games. Those were postponed due to COVID-19. I'm talking about contract talks between Unifor and the Detroit Three, set to really shift into high gear after Labor Day, once the union names its target automaker. So in preparation for the talks, I'll speak with one man who can give us the best lay of the land, a look inside the union strategy, and undoubtedly shoot straight from the hip, as he always does, when I'm joined by the head of Uniform, Mr. Jerry Diaz, on this episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. Jerry, thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, It's always my pleasure, Greg. How are you today? I'm well, I'm well. Um, Let's start with this. Um, How are you feeling heading into these talks. It's a bizarre time, no question about it. We've never lived through something like this. So I just wonder how you're feeling heading into these ones after being part of so many before them. Well, there's no question. Uh, Negotiating during a pandemic uh, makes this much more complicated. I mean, the fact that uh, we're physical distancing, uh, the company is so far across the room, you can barely see them. Um, But then you've also got the economic challenges that come along with the pandemic. Uh, pre-pandemic, the industry was frankly printing money for the last 10 years, and then, you know, now we've hit a brick wall. But that in itself isn't going to alter uh, any of our strategy or our tactics as we, uh, as I, you know, as we're heading towards selecting the target company next week. We've got a lot of issues that need to be resolved, and we are absolutely focused at making sure that we win an agreement that our, that our members are satisfied with. Explain to me this. What goes into choosing your first bargaining partner? We know you you uh, use pattern bargaining. Um, some like to call it your first target automaker. Walk me through that process. What makes the ideal candidate for day number one? Well, first of all, it's going to be the company that choose uh, that that understands our vision and shares our vision for the uh, for the industry today, and more importantly, uh, the strategy for tomorrow. So. Let me give you an example. With all three automakers, we need major investment. Um, you know, at Ford, we don't have a product in Oakville beyond 2023. Uh, for Chrysler, we lost the third shift in Windsor, and of course, we need a we need at least one vehicle, potentially two, to get that third shift back. Uh, we have a real problem with our Chrysler Brampton plant, where we're in desperate need of another product and an investment on the paint shop. And then, of course, the General Motors. Uh, by 2023, the uh, St. Catharines uh, powertrain operations will be half its size if, if we don't get another commitment from GM on, on that facilities. And then, of course, the elephant in the room is the Oshawa complex that sits there with a billion-dollar paint shop and no product. So, you know, so it's going to be the company that says, hey, hold on here. Uh, here's what our plans are. We're not exiting Canada. We understand the importance of our plant. Uh, we're spending a lot of time talking about electric vehicles. So the, the company that shares our vision will be the company uh, that I will select. Let's 
stick in Oshawa for a second. Do you believe you can get a product of some sort in there? I'm always optimistic. Um, I'm I'm not a person that um, that can uh, accept defeat by any stretch of imagination. So listen, I think GM understands that they've got an incredible opportunity here. The Canadian dollar is low. It's about $20 US cheaper to build a car in Canada than it is in the United States. Um, you know, if you've got the supply chain is right there, it hasn't uh, been disassembled yet. So if there's a time to do something, the time is now. And like I said, I mean, yes, we're in a pandemic. Yes, volumes are down. But one thing I do know about General Motors, uh, they're not preoccupied with today. They're every bit of preoccupied about what the vision is of the industry and what tomorrow looks like. And, and we are hoping to be a part of that. In Windsor, um, I hate to say it's just one shift because that is 1500 people without a job but is it is it easier to fill one shift than an entire assembly plant with a new product jerry well i think so i mean first of all any vehicle that goes in to complement the pacifica will be a niche vehicle so it's not as if you're going to start an assembly plant just with a niche vehicle it's not you know you don't you won't get enough volume you won't get enough bang for your money so uh, a, a situation where you've got a solid two-shift operation like exists right now in windsor it doesn't take much to get it over the top so that's why i believe it's easier to complement an existing portfolio than start from scratch there's no question starting from scratch you know you have all kinds of options and depending on the vehicle or the type of option and the type of volume that might be your only option but um, we see we see a supplementary product uh, for Windsor for a long time two shifts was the norm in in auto factories and then it went to three shifts for maximizing that capacity um, do you see automakers being okay with just two shifts or do you see them wanting to get back to maximum capacity on three shifts everywhere oh there's no question they would be uh, they would be much happier and much better off with a three shift operation i mean it, it you know the, the more volume the more money um we found ways in the first place with three shift operation was the windsor assembly plant Right. Um, so, so to lose that third shift after decades is, is troublesome for us and our members and the community of Windsor. Uh, but look, they've realized that it's about maximizing their output. Um, it's, you know, you, you, you're able to, you know, to pay off your fixed costs in a, in a, in a much quicker time period. And like I said, we perfected the art of preventive maintenance and a three shift operation. So, no question, maximizing your capabilities, maximizing your output is the key. Any indication at all at what might replace the edge if it goes away in Oakville? I would assume at this point, aside from Oshawa, Oakville must be your focus when it comes to product. Well, there's no question. Oakville is uh, is the priority right now. And uh, like we're having conversations with Ford. We're not at that level yet. They, they know that we are absolutely determined um, that there has to be a replacement for the edge. And, and Ford knows that there won't be an agreement with us unless there is a commitment. So um, I'm not going to get into any more detail than that. Are we having positive conversations with Ford? Yes, we are, as we are with all three automakers. So we'll see. That's an aggressive agenda. I understand that, but it's uh, but it's a necessity as we sit here in 2020. Ford announced um, this week, or at least they confirmed this week, that they are um, moving 
200 jobs out of the uh, million square foot distribution center in the GTA and creating two new distribution uh, plants or, or facilities in Ontario. Is that part of the ongoing negotiations right now, Jerry? Does that play into the bigger negotiations of the manufacturing part of the contract? Oh, look, the whole issue with the parts distribution center is front and center in our conversations. Absolutely. I mean, whether or not, you know, obviously Ford Oakville will get, you know, you know, it will be is a bigger story based on the sheer amount of jobs, the the uh, the, the parts jobs that are tied into the main assembly plant. So there's no question it'll get more exposure. Um, but the reality is, is that if you're a, one of our members of the parts distribution center, you're absolutely concerned. So we are spending a lot of time uh, talking to Ford about this. I'm, I'm not sure it's not a done deal yet by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so it's all up to negotiations and we'll see where this takes us. What do you say to the automakers if they do try and say that COVID-19 has created either too much uncertainty or too much financial loss to make any sort of concessions or commitments to you and your members? Look, that that argument will get you nowhere quickly. I mean, (laughs) look, it doesn't matter whether or not they're printing money which they have the last 10 years or when we're in a pandemic where things are more difficult. It's always the same argument. When you're making billions of dollars a quarter, the argument is you better be competitive or we'll move the job somewhere else. When you're in a pandemic, they say you better be competitive or we'll move the job somewhere else. So you can't win. So I'm, I'm, I'm not one that's much into chasing my tail. Um, ultimately, um, Canadians punish the OEMs that don't build here. If you take a look at the top um, five sales uh, of vehicles in Canada, it just happens to be the five OEMs that built here. So, you know, they have decisions to make as well. Uh, Canada is an incredibly important market to Ford, GM, and Chrysler. They know that. They acknowledge that. So the question that they have to ask is, if it's that important of a market, what's your footprint going to look like here in the short and long term? So that's what we're talking about. Speaking of footprint, um, I mean, do we ever, uh, this was the first decade in which an automaker hasn't built a new plant in Ontario or in Canada. Um, is, is, are we now at the point of just maintaining footprint, Jerry, or do you see new investment on the horizon, um, either near future or long-term and how much does a dollar have to do with that? I just wonder if we're stuck in a rut of just maintaining what we have or can we really go after new investment no you have to go over new investment i mean and i think what frustrates me the most is that it's only now that governments are understanding that they're going to have to be partners if they want to salvage this industry this is a hundred billion dollar a year industry in canada 80 billion over 80 billion of it is exported uh so this is Big dollars, large commitments. Uh, this is major tax break, uh, base as it relates to building schools, hospitals, roads. So this is a big deal for this country. And I think the governments today are going to really start to have to uh, put their best foot forward, which they haven't, frankly, in, in, gen- in decades, I will argue. So here, in the last 10 years, 15 years, I will argue, during times of record profit, record growth, we've, we've, our footprint in Canada got smaller. So it begs why. Um, there's no question a lot of it had to do with the exploitation of workers in Mexico. It had to do with, uh, you know, the fact that the OEMs were preoccupied with with uh, disinvesting here in Canada and in the United States. So much of the major investment went to Mexico for 
because of the low wages. Um, but I think with the new NAFTA, people are going to have to start thinking a little differently now as well. So um, am I concerned about, you know, uh, maintaining of the jobs that we have today? I wouldn't say I'm concerned. I would say I'm optimistic that we're going to find solutions. But ultimately, you know, Canada's going to have to up its game if they're going to expect to uh, to attract uh, uh, new greenfield investments because we haven't been very aggressive for way too long now. We'll hear more from Jerry Diaz, head of Unifor, after this short break. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an unprecedented impact on the world's population and economy. Social distancing and self-isolation measures have taken consumers out of the auto retail market, while concern over worker safety continues in manufacturing facilities globally. An increasingly distressed supply base is facing the potential for large-scale liquidity issues, which may lead to increased M&A activity throughout the ecosystem. Significant uncertainty remains around the permanence of current consumer behaviors and the extent to which they will be able to re-engage with the sector. Through Deloitte's State of the Consumer Tracker series, we discuss timely data and trends and highlight key consumer insights. We also explore how behavioral preferences take shape over time to allow businesses to make strategic decisions in this dynamic market environment. The ongoing survey results are also available via an interactive dashboard, the Deloitte Global State of the Consumer Tracker. Check in every two weeks to explore new consumer insights and emergent trends. Welcome back to the podcast, where we are joined by Jerry Diaz, National President of Unifor. You mentioned the trade agreement. This will be the first uh, contract negotiations where the USMCA is in full effect. How do you see that changing what you do? Is it it an advantage now to Unifor to have that in place? Do you see automakers maybe considering Canada a little bit more because of the wage increase that is sort of uh, put in place through the USMCA, that $16 an hour guarantee? Um, Does that affect your contract negotiations in a good way? Well, we, I would say yes. I mean, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about it, to be candid with you. But one thing about this industry, this is an industry that thinks six years ahead, eight years ahead, 10 years ahead. And when you start to, to, to look at things uh, that far out, then the $16 an hour, the whole issue of rules of origin, all those issues become critical uh, because clearly you want to play within the rules. And that should give us, if not a leg up, it should at least start to stabilize the footprint that we have here. But one thing that's for sure, and I think the OEMs are understanding this much more today uh, than they ever have. And I'm talking about the Canadian response to the pandemic. Um, our assembly plants are humming along. We don't have one active case that I know of, uh, of, of one of our members in an assembly plant uh, with, with COVID-19. So our, our attendance is, is fine. I mean, we don't have any real huge problems in any of our assembly plant. Um, the quality is there. The productivity is there. And I'll argue it's much different uh, than what we're experiencing in the United States. Uh, many of the OEMs have had to hire, you know, up to a thousand people per assembly plant just to maintain, just to make sure they have enough bodies uh, to keep the, the assembly lines moving. And so here we are in Canada, not having any of those difficulties. So I think all of those things are starting to wake people up. I still, I think they're starting to say, hey. It can't only just be about wages and and benefits and overall total cost. You know, we need to. We, they, you know, you talk a good game about quality and productivity, but if in fact you're serious about that, then Canada is a place, a great place to invest in. Like I said, I think people are starting to understand that today. It's much more crystal clear uh, than it has been in the past. 
Well, you and and some analysts have said in the past we have um, the universal health care here in Canada, which they don't in the U.S. And I've heard people say that is a big reason we were able to get back to work sooner because we didn't have to go back sick in order to pay for our medical bills. So is this a, an illustration of one of the benefits of having um, essentially free health care for all in Canada? Oh, there's no question. That in itself, first of all, from a personal point of view, um, and as as a nationalist, I mean, our universal health care is critical. I mean, any government that wants to t- wants to run on a platform of going back for profit health care will not win one seat in this country in an election. So, our social programs are critical to us. But from a from a practical point of view, from a cost point of view, it probably saves the U.S. automakers about six bucks an hour. Um, so it's huge money. Um, so if you take a look at our Canadian dollar right now sitting at around 76 cents, you take a look at the $5, $6 an hour saving for health care, um, we're pushing the federal government right now to implement a universal pharmacare program, uh, which would then pay for the drugs that would save the, the OEMs and other arm and leg. So, you know, our social programs are critical to us. And frankly, I will argue that they're a major cost-saving uh, mechanism for the employers as well. So. Uh, they, it certainly helps make Canada an attractive place to do business. So what role do you expect the federal or Ontario government to play in these negotiations? I know they're not at the table, obviously, because that's between you and, and the automakers. But how might they become involved at some point in all of this? Um, do you expect the automakers to ask for financial support? Do you expect the governments to offer some up? Absolutely. First of all, I do know without getting into details that there already has been conversations. Um, I do know that, you know, the the federal government, I've spoken specifically to Christian Freeland, our new finance minister. I spoke to Nav Baines, the Minister of Innovation and Technology, Catherine McKenna, who was our environment minister now. Uh, handles the infrastructure coffers. I spoke to the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford. I've you know met with Rod Phillips, the Finance Minister. So everybody is focused, um, and everybody understands that they're going to have to that, that they're going to have to play a role. So where that gets us, I, I'm not sure. As we you know, as you and I are talking today, but I think the governments have a broad understanding of what the tax base uh, does, the amount of jobs that are created within the auto industry, and frankly. Uh, the fact that we have dropped significantly as a nation in the world's ranking uh, when it comes to assembling vehicles. Back in 1999, we were number four in the world in assembling vehicles. Right now, we're about number 12 or 13. And that's what happens when governments don't play a role. That's what happens when you take your eye off the ball. So uh, we spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people so that they understand uh, what's at stake here. I mean, you, you've talked to all these people and they tell you how important it is. And we hear politicians say how important the auto industry is, particularly manufacturing is to the to the country and to its economy. Why do we sit here today as we speak and there is no national auto strategy? What is the holdup on that, Jerry? Why can't the feds get one? I can't figure that out for the life of me. I mean, I, I participate in CAPSI, which is the Canadian Automotive Partnership Committee, where you know, you have the OEMs, you have auto parts suppliers, government, academia. You've got everybody in a room with CAPSI. Uh, and we keep talking about a national auto strategy. So, yeah, look, 
I can't explain why. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, the the problem, of course, is that you have to jump through so many different layers in order to get a, a solid answer. It, it really is frustrating for us. It's frustrating for the OEMs. And look, there's no justification um, why we don't have a national auto strategy. We talk about it. They talk about it. Everybody talks about it. I'm getting awfully gray. Uh, <laughs> thinking about the years that we've been having this same conversation. So there's no legitimate reason why not. I can't understand it. I want to go back to bargaining for a minute. Um, there is a petition that has been started by some of your members asking for what they say is more transparency from the bargaining committees, specifically that you post the tentative agreements uh, online before the ratification vote. The UAW has done something similar. Where do you think that request is coming from? What's the reason behind that ask, do you think? Well, you know what? I really have no idea. I mean, there's a lot of sensitivity, of course, going on based on the UAW scandal, but we're a different organization. Uh, we don't have any of the training funds. Look, the bottom line is I'm going to take my direction from our members. I'll take my direction from the bargaining committees. Um, I'm not going to let a handful of people, you know, frankly, um, steer the ship here. I mean, uh, we have the, the silent majority, which is who I'm listening to. Um, we're always going to have people who will find something to, to, you know, people are entitled to their opinion and I respect that. But one thing that's for sure is I also completely respect the intelligence of our members. People know if it's a good deal or a bad deal. I don't have to sit at home and, 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 and hold document and go over it with my partner and say, geez, what do you think? Do you think it's a good idea? Kids, what do you think? Uh, next door neighbors, what do you think? I don't buy any of that crap. Our members are smart. You drop a document in front of them, you go through it, you walk through it, they ask questions. I can figure out pretty damn quick if this meets my objectives or not. So, you know, it becomes a distraction. Uh, to some people, it doesn't become a distraction to me. Um, I'm here with the bargaining committees. Uh, we're doing what we can. They have a they have a much better handle on what's going on in their individual workplaces. My bargaining committees aren't saying to me, "Oh, geez, Jerry, there's a real lack of trust. Uh, there's a real issue." About none of that is happening here at the table. So, the bottom line is, you know, I don't I don't chase mice when I'm hunting elephants. Let's put it that way. But, but what is the harm of just putting it online and putting it out there for them to look at it if they want? I'm just playing there devil's advocate. That, yeah, no, there isn't. But the facts are is that one thing about the agreement, first of all, when we come to an agreement, you know, we, we like to make sure that there's a lot of there's there's no interference in people making up their mind. Like, so a lot of times we don't put things out beforehand because, you know, the bottom line is that it's our member's decision. So when we do come to an agreement, look, the pattern is out there for the other two companies to see for a month. So regardless of who I selected a week from today to establish the pattern, the pattern is the pattern. So everybody will know what those numbers are well in advance. So regardless of who I pick, the other two companies will have those numbers. Our members will know the numbers. The ratification brochures will be all over the place. They'll have it a month beforehand in many circumstances. So people can't say that somehow we're just springing something on them. It's sure nonsense. Um. This is a question I've been asked over the last couple of days. Where do you expect this to be on September 21st? And I don't have an answer. I don't know. I'm obviously not as close to it as you are. I would just watch it from afar. I'm curious. So will we have our first deal 
on the 21st or will we be on strike on the 1st? What will I be covering, Jerry? Well, I think you're going to be covering a settlement. I would expect that you'll be covering a settlement, but frankly, it's a little too early to tell right now. I haven't even selected uh, the company yet to establish the pattern. So we've got a lot of work to do. It's too early. I mean, I'm bargaining towards a settlement. That's obviously my preference, but the bottom line is if we have to tangle, we tangle. All right, Jerry, I appreciate your time. As always, a great conversation. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Have a great time. Thank you for your time. We reached Jerry on his cell phone in the greater Toronto area. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion or simply want to comment, email me at glason at autonews.com. And remember, you can listen to all our previous shows on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play, or on our website, automotivenews.ca. That does it for this episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. We hope you'll join us next time. So long, everybody.